Let's come right to this uh, scripture from the gospel according to Mark and hear the word of the Lord. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and besides him is there is no other and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. When we uh, read this text, we're at the very heart of the Christian life because the question that's asked is about the very heart of life. What is the greatest commandment? In, in our Western world, we might say, what is the path to flourishing? What's the path to human fulfillment? But the Jewish way of asking that question was to say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, in answering, completely agrees with uh, his own tradition, with Jewish tradition. Jesus often is extremely innovative uh, and surprising, but in this case, he's not innovative or surprising at all. He quotes the very thing that every faithful Jew then and today says the moment they get up, the Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone, you shall love the Lord your God. Every day, every faithful Jew began and begins their day with this uh, little piece of Deuteronomy. Uh, the only thing Jesus does, and you'll notice the scribe doesn't do it with him, is he adds something to the Shema. The Shema speaks of three qualities of the human being, all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And for whatever reason, uh, Jesus adds one. He says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And from this, we get not just a picture of kind of what human flourishing might be, but I actually think a beautiful picture of what it is to be a human being. We are heart, soul, mind, strength, complexes designed for love. You are not a brain without a body, though if you have certain kinds of jobs, you might feel that way. <laughs> you are not a body without a mind and a heart, though some kinds of jobs treat people that way as well. You are not emotion without reason. You're not reason without feeling your heart, soul, mind, and strength all together. And all of it is meant to be gathered up and developed into a capacity to love. I do not know any better way to taste all four together. It's, it's actually interesting to think, you know, what activities um, get like one of the four, two of the four, three of the four, or four of the four? And how much of our days do we spend in things that actually involve all four of the four? But there's one thing that I am very sure can involve all four of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you've already, we've already been doing it in this room. And you've already been at least witnessing it if you're watching the live stream. 
and it's music. Because music activates the emotion of our hearts, our desire, our longing for something, our, our yearning for something. Music reaches down into the depths of our soul, at least if you sing with soul. I was raised in a church that sang with a lot of uh, mind, I would say. <laughs> and then I had the great joy of being the piano player for the junior choir at St. James's AME Zion Church. The junior choir was anyone under the age of 55 who wanted to sing in the choir. <laughs> and he had a piano player. They were like, we're desperate. We will take a white person as the piano player. And I was young, I was eager to learn, I apprenticed, I learned so much from that church, not just about music, but one of the things I learned is there is a way to sing with soul. And that is, all right, I can use all the help from the people. And soul is depth of self. It's going to the heart of who you are, the heart of what you've lost, the heart of what you hope for, and not just singing kind of from the neck up or even from the heart up, but from the gut up, the gut of hope, the gut of loss and grief and fear, and bring that all into music because it all can be there. But music can also be mind. It can be incredibly complex musically. It can have these beautiful lyrics that awaken our imagination and shape the way we think. And then it's a matter of strength. Try singing that back to me, with me. So we're going to sing this several times, and we're going to work on actually activating the capabilities of our body. So as you were singing, probably if you're watching our live stream, as you were, you're probably on a couch. I'm picturing on a couch. <laughs> I now want you to sit up so your back's away from the, the pew or the couch or whatever. So now we've got a little more kind of uprightness in our body. This allows air to flow more easily. And let's just sing that same line again. Ah, I got better. Now I'd invite you just very quietly to stand to your feet. Go ahead and stand. I really hope that live stream people stand. <laughs> Sing like no one's listening, even your teenager. Um, stand with your feet just under your shoulders. So not right next to each other, not too far apart, just sort of comfortably under your shoulders. And sing it again. an improvement. Now, let's add just a little bit of relaxation. Strangely, to use the strength of our body to sing, we have to get rid of all this tension that accumulates in our muscle groups because any tension prevents resonance. If I sort of squeeze up my muscles, it's very hard for anything to come out, right? So just start maybe by rolling your shoulders a little bit and allow tension to, as much as possible, kind of Ease out of your shoulders, shake your hands down, let them just sort of dangle down, uh, not in your pockets, not in any position, just sort of dangling. And then roll your head around very gently, no injuries please, just sort of gentle. Get those neck, mu neck muscles at least a little more relaxed. And then the most interesting thing to try 
You would not believe how much tension you carry in your jaw, but you can relax your jaw, at least with practice, to do something like this, to take it between your two hands and go, <laughs> give it a try. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> You're like, it won't move. <laughs> but as much as possible, let that jaw relax, and then we're just gonna expand our, the, there's muscles ringed around our chest, and we're gonna expand our chest as much as we can so that when we breathe in, without force or without out effort, we're just gonna breathe in naturally. But the more expanded that chest is, the more your diaphragm's gonna pull in the, the sound, so we're relaxed. Gotta take a nice, ordinary, but full breath and sing it again. <laughs> That changed so much. Did you hear the difference? And then hear this second part of the line. Oh, sing that back to me. Oh, yes, the second part goes. So that makes a whole line. And now let's add the mind by adding some lyrics. And I think they will show up here um, that will go to that, uh, that line that we've just learned and sung. And it actually repeats two times. So you'll be able to sing these two lines with the same melody that you've already learned. Let's try it. My shepherd will supply my need. Jehovah is his name. In pastures fresh, he makes me feed beside the living stream. I sense we still are not sure that last time uh, he makes me feed beside the living stream. Because as this line ends, it goes back to that home note, that oh note, which is roughly a C. We'll find out when I get to the piano if I got it right. Um, <laughs> And at the end, this, this, it's interesting, this um, section of the melody has just kept us really singing a chord. Oh, 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 the C major chord. And it's just sort of moved between the notes of the chord. But now we're going to introduce more emotional dimension as we learn the next line of this song or hymn in which we're going to go away from that home chord into a place of dissonance or at least a little bit of tension. And we'll do that by dwelling on notes that aren't part of that nice, comfortable chord. Oh, we're going to dwell on the note um, oh, and oh, oh, oh. Those are tense notes in this key, and it's going to sound like this: He brings my wandering spirit back. We have that there? Yeah, sing that back to me. He brings my wandering spirit back when I forsake his ways. And what's
what's happening here is we're moving away from that comfortable low note. You're like, oh, that got high all of a sudden, right? And it's, it's stretching kind of the emotional amplitude of the song. But now it's gonna come back as we sing the last verse, but now we need to add the soul. So I don't know exactly how to do this. <laughs> but I think I wanna invite you, just for a moment, to allow yourself to remember the deepest grief in your life of which you are aware. Some moment of loss, something you wish had been otherwise, something that came to an end before you expected it would. And just on O first, let's just sing with that grief present to our heart and our, and our mind and our strength. And with the words, and leads me for his mercy's sake. In paths of truth and grace. I invite you to take a seat. What did we just do together? We extended ourselves. We extended ourselves in the direction of heart, in the depths of soul, we awakened our minds through words that perhaps are not familiar, or even if they're familiar, have all this kind of resonance that our minds can attend to and connections our minds can make. And then we, we actually practiced developing our strength. <laughs> not physical raw strength necessarily, but the capacities of the body. And we did it for about eight minutes. And did you hear how it changed in eight minutes? <laughs> Imagine if you spent 10,000 hours <laughs> on that. There is at least one person in this room I can tell who has spent 10,000 hours on that. <laughs> not me. Because we are not just meant to love the Lord our God with whatever heart, soul, mind, and strength we happen to have. <laughs> or to love our neighbor just with whatever we've already got. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. How are you going to have all of your heart? It's gonna be by opening ever more your emotional capability to encompass all the dissonance and beauty of life. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Go down into the depth of who that is that you are and find who that is because the soul is a mystery. It takes time to explore and discover and bring in a way to the surface all that we are. All your mind, all your strength. This is going to require development. The work of our lives, if we're going to live out the great commandment, is to develop allness. But we live in our time with a different dream, a different set of possibilities. And it's a dream in a way that was written down in a very compelling way at the very beginning of the modern era in 1797 by a poet and writer named Johann Wolfgang von Goethe who wrote a ballad, it's kind of a little sing-song poem called Der Zauberlehrling. And we might well have forgotten Der Zauberlehrling, 
if 100 years later, precisely in 1897, a composer, a French composer named Paul Ducat, had not decided that it was such an interesting story that he wanted to set it to music and create a kind of symphonic poem. And we might never have heard of Paul Ducat and his setting of Der Zauberlehrling. If the animators of Walt Disney, as they thought what, what could be the sort of uh, centerpiece of the 1940 animated film Fantasia, had not picked up this poem and this music and put Mickey Mouse in the starring role. And we remember it, of course, as the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is what Der Zauberlehrling means in English. A story of Mickey, who is uh, apprenticing himself, apparently, to some old magician. The magician wears a magic hat. The magician goes to bed. Mickey has some work to do. And so Mickey decides, with some hesitation initially, to see if putting on the hat will help him with the work. Indeed, as he puts the hat on, it does not tell him which house he's in, a Gryffindor or a Slytherin or whatever, but it does give him the opportunity to command a broom in the corner to do the lowly work that Mickey has been assigned, namely to carry water up the stairs into the cauldron of water that fills the turret of the sorcerer's presumed uh, tower. And the broom gets to work. And Mickey is quite delighted by this. He sits down in relaxed luxury, commanding the broom. The music swells. He sort of starts conducting. He then actually falls asleep as the broom keeps bringing water up to fill the cauldron. He, in his dreams, he soars into the heavens. He starts commanding the moon and the stars, and they all start swirling around. And then he starts to command the ocean to arise. But then he suddenly realizes, he wakes up suddenly, and he's actually sort of floating because the broom has taken its assignment way too seriously and has brought way more water than the cauldron needs. And now Mickey has the problem of stopping the broom. And it turns out the broom does not want to stop. So Mickey goes, finds a hatchet in a corner, conveniently provided by the animators of the film, and uh, tries to smash the broom into pieces. Surely that will stop the broom. The problem is each one turns into its own monomaniacal broom that is, then goes and fetches water. It's getting worse and worse. A kind of whirlpool is rising, and Mickey is in huge trouble. He's about to be swept away like you know uh, Ahab at the end of uh, Moby Dick, except that the sorcerer comes back, snatches the hat off Mickey's head, says some spell to reverse the, the magic, and then sends Mickey off in a detail we would never allow in an animated film today with a literal smack on the backside <laughs> uh, off back to his toil, back to his apprentice position. It's a dream, a dream of freedom from drudgery, a dream of saying a spell and suddenly the thing will happen a dream of vastly expanded capability with much reduced effort. And the word that I think captures this that I've been noticing is showing up an awful lot these days. It's the dream of superpowers. Superpowers, instant, effortless power. Superpowers which are not just super powerful, that is, the ability to get an extraordinary amount done or in whatever domain you're working in, but also, not just super powerful, but also super easy. So super powerful, but super easy. This is not the same thing as ordinary, just impressive power. There are people who get to the Olympics in uh, weightlifting, you know, say the, the Olympic deadlift, and these are people with extraordinary developed capabilities of the human body, the strength component. 
I don't know if they work on their hearts, mind, and soul, but probably, I would guess actually to be an Olympic type lifter, you probably have to love those weights in some ways. Like your heart just needs to love the gym. And it probably takes soul to do it, and you probably have to think about it. So maybe they're doing all of them, but they're certainly impressive on the strength part. But if an Olympic deadlifter were to take my place, since I cannot pretend to be an Olympic deadlifter, um, and, and were to lift a really heavy weight, you would be very impressed, but you would not feel like it was e instant, easy, or effortless. Whereas superpowers just have this effortless quality. Just say the word, that's what Mickey dreams of. Power that doesn't require time. Power that doesn't require exertion. Power that only requires will. Power that doesn't require you to become someone or something different in order to see a difference. In other words, you don't have to change to make a change. And in a way, this sounds like what we would want. And in a way, it's what we have. In the modern world, the world that was just getting going when von Goethe wrote his poem, the industrial era vastly multiplied human strength. The computational era vastly multiplied human powers, especially of math and memory. And I've noticed that as this thing really gets going, uh, more and more people are offering superpowers. I bet there is a billboard within a walking distance of this uh, sanctuary here that offers some kind of superpowers. I've seen coding superpowers. I downloaded a little plugin for my like, presentation program for Zoom, and I was told I was getting presenting superpowers. I was like, wow, that's awesome. My colleagues at uh, my organization, use a lot of them use this email thing, some of you probably use it, called superhuman. <laughs> I'm wondering if in, in German it's called Übermensch. <laughs> like, Nietzsche would be very pleased. I mean, seriously, do they, do they actually call it Übermensch? That would be amazing. Um, so, superhuman. We even have social superpowers. This is really in some ways what social media is. It's given everybody a taste of the kind of recognition and affirmation that it used to only come to celebrities. Low friction relationships, highly visible cues of our status and our influence. Social superpowers. And when you are in the superpower zone in these different domains, when you're pounding through your email or you know, scrolling through an infinite feed that just every time you pull that thing down, it gives you that little satisfying rubber band effect and more appears, right? It feels so close to allness. Wow, this is great. I am really getting stuff done. I am so productive. I am so engaged. It's extremely close to this thing that was popularized back in the 1990s by this uh, unpronounceably named uh, Hungarian uh, psychologist, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. The idea of flow. Flow being something that's been studied in people who reach peaks of high performance, whether athletic or musical or intellectual, creative. Uh, when, you, when you are so engaged in an activity with such skill and mastery that you just, you, you lose kind of a sense of time, you get deeply present to the work and you, you're incredibly productive. There are many ways to experience flow. Uh, for me, one pretty consistent way, I, I'm a cyclist, I'm not a deadlifter, weightlifter, but I, I do love to get out on my bike most days uh, in Pennsylvania where we, the weather is not always great, but when the weather is good, I go out on about a 20 mile ride. And it's not a pleasure ride, like I'm definitely pushing myself. But I will tell you, some mysterious amount of time into the ride, I, I enter this state where 
whatever, however I started, whatever I was worried about when I started, uh, I'm, I'm just now totally on my bike. <laughs> and I'm moving, I'm feeling the air, I'm feeling the burn in my muscles and my lungs. And it's just this kind of full presence to this beautiful experience of being on a bicycle, which I think is a heart, soul, mind, strength experience. And it's a kind of taste of flow. And the superpower zone, when we're kind of exercising these little bits of technological magic, it's so close to this, but not quite the same. Let me see if I can articulate how it's not the same. I think one really interesting thing is how the, super the superpower zone begins. The superpower zone begins with a surge of anticipation. Whatever that thing is that when you click it, it does things for you. <laughs> Whether it's your favorite Netflix series or your social media drug of choice, uh, you, you're eager to get to it. There's this sense of rushing power. Even as the title sequence plays, you're like, oh, oh, it's, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Here we go, I feel I'm getting something done, even though it's just Netflix is starting you know, episode 15 of season four. This is so different from how flow begins. Most often, flow begins with a sense of resistance, especially when you're doing creative work. I'm a writer. I have experienced flow as a writer, but never when I sit down to write, not at first. I sit down, there's this blank page, great blank screen, and I just feel overwhelmed with anxiety, the desire to procrastinate, awareness of how many things need cleaning in my home, and for that matter, outdoors. I think I need to go pick up the trash around my house. Like, I am so resistant to entering the thing, even though time and time again, if I just stay at that stupid chair, in the end I, feel, I experience creative flow. But oh my gosh, it's hard to get there. Or maybe flow just begins with whatever emotion we bring in. Sadness, uh, elation, whatever. But, and at the beginning we don't feel that anything's changing. But then our mood begins to shift, our attention begins to kind of co converge very different beginning, superpowers and flow, and very different ending as well. When flow comes to an end, it ends gracefully. There's a sense of humility, awe, a strange feeling that's okay that it's over. We're able to trust that the next time we need to perform at that level, we'll be able to do it. And even though we've just been in this kind of profound fullness and allness, at the end of flow, as it dissipates, as the work ends, as the bike ride ends, we're sort of strangely at ease with smallness. <laughs> it's okay just to be a creature. And we're open to other people, and maybe even to God or the cosmos in a new way. This is not how the superpower zone ends. <laughs> the superpower zone does not end gra gracefully. <laughs> it ends reluctantly, grudgingly, often angrily, Think about the 10-year-old or the 30-year-old dragged away from video games to dinner, right? Like you are in the zone. You are, you are like playing FIFA football. You are a, a striker on like a top-level, you know, Champions League team. You're in the midst of it. You're like going downfield or you're a Navy SEAL storming some beach or you're a, I don't know what, you know, there's so many different games, right? And in all of them, they give you just this instant sense. I'm so in this. And then mom is calling you to go to dinner. You're like, no, no, I, I, am, I am in the superpower zone right now. And dinner is not superpower zone. It involves other people, conversation, all kinds of things that are very complex. 
flow in so gracefully. But we all know that feeling, I watched too many of those things, and yet I want more. I'm not willing to let it go. And once we exit, our memories of the superpowers on are strangely empty, almost as if we were in a world that doesn't touch the real one. I've done this 20-mile bike ride probably, I don't know, 200 times in the last five years, and it's accumulated this deep memory of the place that I live in, what it's like to be out on a bike. I, I, I remember it very vividly. I can remember every turn, every part of that ride, even as I'm here. But when I think of the thousands of times, I, I hesitate to say, but maybe thousands of hours, it's plausible. Thousands of hours I spent throwing, scrolling through my drug of choice, which is Twitter. I can't remember hardly any of it, even though at the time it was elating and intense and there was more to see and more to be mad at and more people who were wrong on the internet. Which do we want? Where did this dream come from, this dream of instant effortless power that leaves us so strangely undeveloped even as it gives us such sensations of efficacy? I think the answer has been in Mickey Mouse's story. This is the dream of magic, the dream of magic. And maybe more specifically, because I think this is what von Goethe was thinking of, it's the dream of alchemy. The alchemists, we don't talk about them very much because we think they failed, and they did fail in one way, but they left us a dream. They sought to bend the natural world to the end of magic. They sought the philosopher's stone that would turn anything into gold and would give the one who possessed it immortal life. And in some ways, I think our modern world is this strange combination of the discoveries of the scientists, which are very real and very good, plus the dream of the alchemists. So when we actually did learn how the natural world worked, which the alchemists weren't very good at, we then took their dream and said, oh, now we can have superpowers. But in fact, alchemy doesn't work and magic doesn't work. And the alchemist becomes desperate to try to make it work try to stay in the superpower zone. And of course you'll say, but our technology does work. Well, science works. The application of science works. But how are we doing it doing magic? How's it going for us? It is clear the brooms are doing something. I will say that. Like it's clear we got brooms doing stuff. But are they still in our control? Are they doing things we intend or things we didn't intend? And for that matter, in this scenario, are we the apprentice, the one who kind of wields the magic hat and pushes the button and cool things happen? Or as someone pointed out to me the other day, he was like, uh, I, I was trying this idea out with another group. And he raised his hand and he said, actually, I feel like we're the broom. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that is how it feels. Like you, there's this strange alchemy by which the, the, the powers of the superpower zone seem to turn us not so much into the sorcerer, but into the broom. And more of us feel kind of driven by the technological world we're in, compelled, compulsive, not in control, not sure where it's going. And we have dwindled in our heart, soul, mind, strength constitution. We've diminished above all in our capacity for love because there are no 
friendship superpowers. There are no marriage superpowers. We had six beautiful children up here who are all going to cause their parents at some point or another to feel a level of rage that they have never felt toward another creature. <laughs> and there are no parenting superpowers. There are no love superpowers. Every moment we spend apprenticing ourselves to the sorcerer is a moment we're diminishing in our capacity to love. Until the technological era began, this idea of magic, of being a magician, a sorcerer, was the dream of crazed men. And I use both of those words very carefully and intentionally. Men driven to insanity by the dream of doing magic. But now we get to experience a convincing simulation of it every day. I don't think it will work for us in the long run in all the ways that matter any more than it worked for them. So a few thoughts, and then we're gonna try it too, about how we might turn around. I don't think we should seek magic. I don't think we should believe that there are shortcuts to the things we really want. I do believe technology, because it's based on science, and science is based on a very good world that's the creation of a very good God, is a good thing. But we need to use all the knowledge we have about how the world works not to develop magic brooms or superpowers, but what I would want to call instruments. Instruments is a wonderful word. You can think of medical instruments that a highly skilled practitioner uses to intervene in the human body to relieve suffering and to restore wholeness. You can think of scientific instruments. My wife is an experimental physicist. She uses laser tables where you bounce these lasers around and things happen. I don't know, I, I'm not an expert on what my wife does, but she's a fellow of the American Physical Society, so something happened on the laser table. And what, it, what happened was, you used super high tech, but a human being used it at every point. And let me tell you, being a scientist requires heart, soul, mind, and strength to do it well. And at the end of that is discovery, expansion of understanding of this amazing world, and it's beautiful. It's mathematically beautiful. Even the pictures of the things her lasers do are beautiful. And then musical instruments. I mean, this little red keyboard, super high technology. But when King plays it as part of a band, as part of a community, and he brings heart, soul, mind, and strength to it, something comes alive. This is actually what we were promised at one stage of the technological revolution. Steve Jobs had this famous thing where he said, I think a computer can be a bicycle for the mind. I love that. I wish that's what we had. <laughs> Why didn't he say, a computer is a Saturn V rocket for the mind? A very small human being sits passively atop it while it takes them somewhere that they can't breathe. Or, it would have been anachronistic, but I think what it feels like these days is our computers are almost more like self-driving cars for the mind. <laughs> we get in and they sort of take us somewhere. It's not always clear where they're going or how much control we have. But a bicycle for the mind, let's, let's build that. Let's require this thing, which can be the ultimate superpower device. My intention when I pick this up, literally every time, if I'm paying attention, is only used to use it in a way that touches heart, soul, mind, and strength, and develops heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it can be the ultimate instrument. So, we were singing before, just with our bodies, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's add an instrument.
encourage you to stand. Let's sing one more verse of this hymn. happened as we added an instrument? Well, we still were bringing all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There were no superpowers used here. But the instrument can add something. It can extend it. It can deepen it. What if all our technology were like that? I think there's one other thing that I want to invite us to that's at the very heart of the matter. And it's the question of one way to put it is, what kind of lives do we want? Do we want a charmed life or a blessed life? A charmed life or a blessed life? A charmed is a pagan word, a magical word. Something happens, a spell is cast, and your life is sort of transformed. Youth is a charm. Beauty is a charm. You did very little to obtain it. You don't know when it will fade. Most of what gets tagged, these days ironically, blessed on Instagram, should be charmed. You're very lucky. Some god, not a big G god, has smiled on you just for a moment and you capture it charmed. I had a charmed friend. His name was David Sachs. He lived around the corner from me. We got to know each other through our mutual friend, an artist named Makoto Fujimura. And David was also an artist. This is him with Angie, his wife, who was a costume designer for Broadway. And their four kids back when Noah was eight years old. He's 18 today. 18, well, it turns 18 in four weeks. And uh, I consider them my most Instagrammable friends. <laughs> They're just, they were really good-looking, they're super sweet. Everyone loves to come over to their house. They have a very big house. David had, a wonder, had an amazing career. He was a photographer, commercial photographer, did incredible work. In his spare time, he would do beautiful, beautiful art photography. Um, and we became friends because we were both trying to be artists in different ways in the world. Um, and part of why I was drawn to David was when you were friends with him, you kind of felt like you were drawn into a charmed circle. 
And as much as there was real love and friendship there, there was also this sense, ooh, I'm kind of proximate to someone really talented. Uh, to be totally honest, when I walk into this room, I kind of feel that way. Like, gosh, there's a lot of beautiful, young, talented people here. I wonder if I can get a selfie with them. <laughs> On October 31st, 2011, I got a text from David. It said, don't tell anyone, but I'm in room such and such at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. I've just been told that I have cancer. David had stage four cancer. Cancer of unknown primary, they call it. We never, you never find out where it started, but because by the time it's stage four, by definition, it's in every organ. And my friend who effortlessly beat me at squash over and over again, <laughs> entered into the last journey of his life. And we have amazing medical instruments. And in the hands of skilled people, they held back the worst of the disease for about a year. And we had amazing times in that year. David and Angie set up a Facebook group called The Inner Circle to share their journey, the most redemptive use I've ever seen of Facebook, as they shared incredibly vulnerable what was happening. By the, uh, about, a, about a year in, the, the Inner Circle had 2,000 people in the, in the uh, private Facebook group. And we followed this family as they reckoned with what was ahead. And of course, as is so often the case, the charm wore off, the medicines stopped working so well, and David came to the last weeks of his life, and the greatest gift of my life, I think I can truly say this, maybe aside from the birth of two children, was being in David's room the last nights of his life. As we sang, and prayed and waited and very awkward things happened. And I was invited to be there after all the superpowers were over, just in the presence in their master bedroom of David and Angie and his brother and a few friends. And some nights I left and I raged at God. I, I spoke unspeakable words to God, except God is perfectly happy to hear those words. Never be afraid to tell God what you really think about him and his messed up world. But the last night I was there, I drove away and I had the strangest feeling. I said to God, I think my whole life up to this point has been charmed, but now I feel blessed. There was blessing in that bedroom like I have never experienced anywhere else because there was allness of love. The charm of superpowers will expire for us and probably for our society because magic doesn't work. It doesn't work for us as individuals. It doesn't work as, for us as nations. It's never worked. And have we been the sorcerer's apprentice? If so, von Goethe told us at the very dawn of the modern era that this charm would expire. But that is not bad news. We were never meant to be charmed. This temporary suspension of our vulnerability. We are meant for blessing. There is a love in vulnerability found on the other side of suffering. I cannot prove it to you, but I can testify to you, blessing does not expire. It does not expire like a charm. It does not fade and it does not fail. And it is so close to us. If we will just leave the superpower zone and choose blessing instead. Why don't we stand 
and sing this hymn. Lift up your countenance upon us. Be gracious to us. Free us, even as we go into this next, these next moments of worship and prayer, to release our claim on magic, 
to turn from our superpowers, to bring you our grief, to bring you our soul, and to find that we are children in your house. Come, Lord, as we come to you. In Jesus' name.